Good morning, how's everyone? Good, my name's Eric, if you don't know me. I'd love to get to know you after the service. We'll be in the Welcome uh, Center out in the courtyard to answer any questions you might have, give you a gift, help you connect to our church. Uh, also, if you're online or new, if you want to connect uh, even faster, you can hit the QR code in front of you. Hit I'm new and uh, help us get your information and connect you to the church. Uh, also, you can hit um, prayer requests and the staff prays for you weekly and the elders, when we meet, we pray for you as well. So it's one way we can connect and, and love you and get to know what's going on in your life. Uh, also, just want you to save the date a few things. Um, January 2nd, we'll be moving our worship service times to 8.30 and 10. Uh, the 10 o'clock will have adult connection classes, children's ministry, uh, and youth ministry as well. And so as you see, hopefully you're seeing, uh, there's a lot of new faces in our church, and we're growing and praising God for that. And with that, we're trying to serve, love, and meet the needs of our church to the best we can. And so we're excited for the next chapter that God's growing us. Uh, as well as you can see, we have construction going on, and there might be some two-by-fours and random things in your way. And so we just uh, ask for your patience as we uh, continue to grow and try to serve you and love you uh, to the best we can. Again, so that'll be January 2nd. And then the next one, Christmas Eve, I know we start making our plans and start getting things dialed in. We'll be at 3, 4, 30, and 6, so keep that uh, in your mind as our uh, service time options. And then uh, just last thing, if you're out in the courtyard, you'll see an area for boxes of love, uh, just an opportunity for us to connect with families that are in need, uh, share the gospel, love them, pray for them. Um, and this isn't for Thanksgiving. This is, you have December to do this as well. And so I think we still have some boxes that are needed, and it's a, a relational opportunity, not just a transaction. We get to meet people, uh, love them, pray for them, and, and hopefully build a relationship. So with that, we are still in Romans chapter 12. And God has a funny way of uh, putting uh, Scripture for the perfect time. Um, if you look at the way this is going to set up is, you know, right before we go into the holidays, it's going to be like, this is how you love people. And then after Thanksgiving, we're going to come back and be like, here's how you don't repay revenge with evil, right? And so it's kind of funny. This is how you act. Now, don't get mad that they've offended you. So uh, we're going to be in there and just hopefully just, you know, a little reminder. I don't know if, uh, how you feel about holidays and these things. Maybe some of you get angry or sad or depressed. Maybe for some of you, it's exciting you know, for me, I grew up in Arizona, and they have these things called, uh, a term, I should say, called snowbirds. You guys know what that is, right? Okay, it's for, for older people who are retired, and they don't want to live in the snow uh, during the winter months, so they come to Arizona, uh, so they can be cold in 70 degrees. And so that is kind of the context I grew up, and it was just my mother and I, and uh, we would always get invited to someone's house for Thanksgiving, because um, that's too much for, for just us. And my first encouragement would be is uh, just ask the Lord maybe who might there be that's alone. Um, I know a lot of families are unable to meet because of various disagreements. And who would be someone you can invite that they could be a part of your Thanksgiving and your family? And we'll even get to that in the text with hospitality. Um, but two, and this one's important, um, you know, being a younger kid and having all these different um, entities at Thanksgiving, I learned the most about politics and church at holiday meals. So just be very, I mean, I still remember Jimmy Carter likes peanuts, and I don't even know who that guy is, right? Like, these are the kind of things, just be careful. 
in our conversations that, that kids are watching and they are hearing. And may they, may, may they hear the things that are pleasing to the Lord. Uh, and the text will address that too. So uh, just excited to, to hit this part and for God to lead us and guide us as we prepare to go into Thanksgiving and Christmas and many, many meetings with the crazies. So let's pray. God, we love you and we praise you. Uh, your word is just so timely, it's so accurate. Um, and it's my deep prayer that we would see this text as a blessing, um, as what is best for us, as your perfect design um, for your children, for our good, for your glory. And so I just pray your words would wrap around us, uh, illuminate our hearts, uh, cause us to have joy, hope, um, and a drive to be like your son Jesus. And so we just pray for your words now as we meet and gather, and uh, we pray for you to be glorified in this service. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So remember, we're working through Romans, not in isolation, as a whole book. And so it's important we keep remembering, you know, chapter 8 steps up or sets up these ideas or truths. You are a child of God. You've been adopted. You have the Holy Spirit. God's love will never leave, never forsake. God works all things for our good. And then it starts to unravel. Look, he's, at the, he's the potter, right? He's in charge. He's to be worshiped. He doesn't need our help. And then chapter 12 comes. Now, because of who he is, we have to be a living sacrifice and be open and available to anything he would have. And so then he starts listing out, as a child of God, these are the things we are to do. So we're going to look at uh, four responsibilities of a child of God. And so we're going to look at one, to show genuine love, two, to be patient, three, to show hospitality, and four, to live in, to live in harmony. And so we want to look through that. And if you miss anything in the sermon, just write this down and you'll catch most of it, is loving other people has nothing to do with the other person. It has everything to do with who Christ is. And the quicker we can realize that no one will ever deserve the love you're going to give, and it's not about purchasing and earning love, it's about responding to the Father's love, um, the easier these things will be. So, first principle is here, he says, let love be genuine. So to, to show genuine love, which is contrasting this idea, you know, part of the root word in genuine love here is, is the same word they would use for hypocrite. And, and a hypocrite back then was someone who would usually be an actor and they would wear a mask. And so genuineness is saying that you take off your mask. You're not pretending. You're not putting on a show. You're not performing. There is a genuine, deep, committed love. And that love comes from the Father. It's modeled by the Father. And, and we get this family language that picks up in, in 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And so what we want to do is, really, okay, there's a brotherly love that we're to have amongst Christians. And so what we want to look at is, does that mean we have to agree on everything? What are the things we should fight for? Uh, how do we know that we're family? So first thing we're going to look at is, um, if we're family, that means we have the same father. If we have the same father, that means we're talking about him in the same way. And so we're not family when we get God wrong or Jesus wrong. If you just go back into chapter 11, how does God talk about himself? He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He's perfect. He's just. He's holy. He's all of these things. If you change the nature of God, we have a different father, and we're not family. 
Okay? That's what's important, that when we say this is our Father, it's the same God, and it's the God as revealed in the Bible, not as revealed in culture, revealed in experience, or revealed in, in my personal um, you know, dreams. And so if we change those things, if he's not all-knowing, if he's not all-powerful, if he's limited in sovereignty, then he's not as God describes himself, and you have a different father. Okay? The same goes for Jesus. Jesus is the son of God. If you change the son, you change the family. Okay? So Jesus is divine. He's fully God. He's fully man. If he's not fully man, he can't pay for our sins. If he's not fully God, um, he can't be perfect. He, he can't speak on behalf of God. He doesn't have divinity. And so if we change those things, you have a different father, and that makes us not family. And so it's very important that if we're going to fight and we're going to be, um, go to the mat or to the carpet, so to speak, it needs to be about, are we actually family? And what does the Bible actually say about God? Because if we lose God, we lose the gospel, we're not saved, we're not family. Those are big problems, true? Absolutely. So genuine love comes from the love of the Father, but we have to first agree on who is the Father, Okay. Now we, we get that. Now we can start looking at the Bible says we're to have genuine love. And so to make sure that we don't read worldly love into biblical love, let's maybe just walk through a little bit of what we see the world say love is, and then let's contrast that with what we see the Bible to say love is. Um, because what we're seeing in our culture is you love me if you agree with me. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. It's this, if you disagree with me, you're unloving, you're mean, and you're hateful. You have to agree with me or you're unloving. And I think what we're seeing is that definition of love leads to anarchy. What it leads to is you're fighting for your individual truth and someone disagrees with you and all of a sudden it's hate against you. And that hate and war against you causes you to want to war against them and it creates all of this chaos. There, there's no ability to disagree. There's no ability to have truth. And the, the way the system kind of works, I want you to think about it with me, is that to be the authentic you is the ultimate thing you can do. And this is why we're getting at genuine love is not the authentic you. Okay, but let's walk through it real quick. So there's, there's a way that you think and feel. And whatever that is, you need to follow it and do it. Even if it's getting a divorce, even if it's changing your gender, so if you do one of those things, you need to come to grips. I'm not meant to be married, or I should have been born the opposite gender of what I was born. And then you need to come out and tell everybody that. You need to express the authentic you to everyone. Hey, I've changed gender. Hey, I've not married anymore. God wants me to be this way. It's the authentic me. And then the last part's the part that's killing us, is that you now have to affirm our expression of the authentic me. And if you don't affirm it, you hate me. Are we seeing this play out? So, you know, I'm giving you a synopsis, okay? That doesn't even work in the world, let alone biblically. There's no room to disagree. How can you have friendship when everyone has to agree with you? And it's not tenable. You realize we can't agree with ourselves, right? You try to get dressed in the morning, right? You're like, I love this shirt. I hate this shirt. Why did I wear that? Why did I do that? Why did I say that? Why didn't I say that? Are we not even in a constant state of war with ourselves? Exactly. So by definition, you hate yourself. Okay? If the system's terrible. It doesn't work. Okay? There has to be the ability to disagree. And, and we've had this uh, built into our, our society, and somehow it's disintegrating. I mean, think about it. 
We can disagree on sports teams, can't we? We shouldn't, but we do, right? Yeah, we, we disagree on who has the best hamburger, right? We all know it's in and out, but we allow those to disagree, right? And we're okay. We've disagreed on stock options, what's a good stock, bad stock, should you play the stock market? We've disagreed on Android versus Apple phones, right? iPhones, PCs versus Apples, not the fruit, the, the computer, right? We disagree on the things, don't we? Up until recently, you were allowed to disagree with who the president was, right? When you look back in our history, it's like, yeah, I voted for so-and-so, I voted for so-and-so, cool. Now, don't you dare disagree. Homeschool, public school, we can disagree on those things, can't we? Western health, modern medicine, we can disagree on that, can't we? Then we can disagree on a vaccine, right? First service was quick. You guys are like, whoa, 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 slow your roll, pastor. Slow, yeah, well, I don't need to because it's not in the text. Okay? We got to be able to disagree on the things the world holds dear because we have what God holds dear in common. And so genuine love is not agreement. Genuine love is this is how the Father has loved me and I'm going to love you in that same way, even if you don't deserve it. Even if we disagree, what we have in common by God, by family, far outweighs what we disagree about in this world. And what we will celebrate for eternity is what we will celebrate here. What is not celebrated in eternity will not be celebrated here. See, it's hard to have genuine love for someone when we've tied our worldly preferences to the ability to love them as a precondition. And you see, genuine love is, there's nothing connected to it. I just love you. I love you because the Father has loved me. And then all of a sudden we lose our ability to keep working your way through this. It doesn't say just with brotherly affection. It says, but outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Um, do be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. If we have these conditions to love, we'll never love people. And so to have a genuine love, it's the way this whole thing's working. It's this is the father. He's the potter. We're the clay. We're at his disposal. We're to be a living sacrifice. Whatever you want, God. See, it's not about the person. It doesn't matter if we agree with the person. It matters that the Father has loved us. And so then now that kind of shifts things. And again, we're talking about Christians. I mean, think about this. If you can't love Christians, how are we going to love non-Christians? Is, is that a fair statement? You guys tracking with me? Okay. I want you to say, so how do we see other Christians? And so there has to be a shift in how we see them. We can't see them as a position, a political position, an economic position, a governmental position, a financial position. We can't see them as who they are in the past. We can't see them as an opportunity to better ourselves. We have to see them as a child of God. That's who they are. They are adopted out of the very mercy of God just as we are. We lose sight of God. We lose sight of us. We lose the ability to have genuine love. See, love can't be about moving ourselves up in the world or putting others down to make us feel better about ourselves in the world. 
And, and that's slowly what's becoming of Christianity is we see people as an opportunity to make ourselves look better or an opportunity to prove ourselves right or an opportunity to add more pieces to our agenda. And that's simply not what God tells us to do. So what's the second part of this is that we have to hate what is evil. See, here's the problem. We have kind of defined evil as murder. And so if I'm not murdering someone, I can slander them, gossip about them, be mean to them, belittle them, not forgive them, take out vengeance on them. As long as I'm not murdering them, I'm being good to them. And so to hate what is evil means we hate the very things that God calls evil. Well, look at all the lists in the Bible. They're all grouped together. There's not more evil, less evil kind of evil. So when we think of gossip, we have to hate gossip. That we can't use another brother or sister in Christ as a way to make ourselves look better or feel better or to prove our position and say, ha, 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 I knew that would happen to you. I'm glad that would happen to you. That we would say, oh yeah, I'll show you. I won't say hi to you. I'll ignore you. I'll turn people against you. I won't invite you. I'll deny you fellowship. I'll be greedy with my resources. I won't forgive you. Now, isn't that one of the worst things about holidays is sometimes you get around Christian family and all it becomes is an opportunity to take the past and beat you with it? Right? You guys know what I'm talking about. Hate what is evil. See, if we don't hate these things, we'll very easily take it and project it onto our brothers and sisters in Christ and think we're doing them a favor. And then we get mad when they don't thank us for being mean to them. That's a problem, isn't it? You have to hate what is evil. Hate it, hate it, hate it. And it's not because the other person doesn't deserve some type of vengeance or justice. It's simply that God says vengeance is his, not ours. And if you're a child of God, he disciplines those whom he loves. And if you're not a child of God, his wrath will bring justice. Either way, God will take care of it. He says, let me take care of the justice. You have genuine love, hate what is evil, but hold fast to what is good. So we have to hold fast to the things that God says are good. We know God himself is good. But what are some of the things we know that God says are good? Or, or how do we see goodness working out in humanity? Jesus, right? Right? He's the manifestation, display, visible image of the invisible God. So, so what does Jesus show us? Is Jesus kind? Not a trick question. Absolutely he's kind. He's kind to the prostitute. He's kind to the Samaritan woman. He's kind to the tax collector. Now, does Jesus agree with all of these people? Absolutely not. Does Jesus withhold the harsh truth from people? Absolutely not. We talked about that last week. He calls Peter Satan. That's pretty harsh, isn't it? But he's saying, hey, you're going against the will of God. That's not okay. But he's kind to these people. He, he's kind and he tells them what's best for them. This is what the Father is telling me to do. It is best for you to be like me and do the Father's will. Is Jesus gentle? Absolutely. He talks to people in a way that they can talk about their sins. He doesn't take their past, beat them with it over and over and over again. He listens to them. You know, this weekend, you might do a lot of listening. 
Instead of ignoring, checking out, talking over, fighting. To be gentle is to understand I am a sinner saved by the mercy and grace of the Father. This person needs the mercy and grace of the Father. I need to be gentle with them. Because it's in gentleness that we guide people back to the loving Father for forgiveness of sins and repentance. Who's ever thanked you for yelling at them? Just being angry at them. You're like, your anger moved me to tears. I'm a better person because of your anger. I just want to thank you for that. Humiliating me in front of the family has done wonders for my prayer life. It's brought me closer to God in ways I can't speak. Have we heard of that? Okay, no. Gentleness, absolutely. But again, you have to hate what is evil. And we have to be intimately connected with how the Father has dealt with us. Honesty, honesty is a good thing. It's okay to be honest. It's okay to say, hey, you're on like your ninth drink. You should probably stop. The way you're talking to your spouse isn't godly. The way you're dealing with your children doesn't edify the church. It doesn't, it doesn't speak to what Jesus speaks of. Those are truthful statements, aren't they? And they can be done gently. It's when they're followed by, you idiot, why aren't you more like me? We get into problems, huh? You've always been this way. You'll never be this. Now we're belittling. Now we're being mean. Now we're loving what is evil and hating what is good. Okay? Think through this. Forgiveness. Forgiveness it isn't just forgetting. It's letting go. But we like to hold on to things and beat people with it to remind them of how terrible they are and how they failed and how they're an utter failure because it brings us some sort of comfort and joy because it, it gives us joy to see them in pain. That's a problem, isn't it? See, if we're not intimately reminded that the Father has forgiven us, he's shown us mercy, we don't deserve his love, we don't deserve his grace, we don't understand we're to be a living sacrifice, open and available to anything that the potter would ask of us, then it's very hard for us to forgive other people if we're not actively seeing how the Father is forgiving us. Okay? You hold fast to what is good. Self-control, right? It's one of the fruit of the Spirit. It's have self-control. That is a good thing. There's going to be a lot of times that you're going to think something here, and self-control is not letting it come out here, right? Learn this mantra, sin once, not twice. You sin once by thinking it. Don't sin twice by saying it. Right? Self-control. It's not helpful. It's not profitable. It's not godly. Right? So think start thinking through these things. Now, the end part of this little pericope here in, in 11, right, it says to not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in the spirit, but it's to serve the Lord. This love is about who is God and how can I serve him in light of his greatness, goodness, patience, kindness, gentleness, his mercy. How can I do it for him? It never has to do with the individual. It always has to do with God. And if we can wrap our hands around and our heads around, this isn't because they deserve it. It's because God deserves it. How we treat people reflects how we feel about God. And so to put that in the front of your mind. Now here's, here's another part that's interesting. Again, go to your text because you're going to get mad at me, okay? Do not be slothful in zeal. What is he getting at? We need to be passionate about this. 
passionate about loving people in the name of serving the Lord. So what does that mean? Your passion better be more about Jesus and less about your position. Let that sink in for a second because I guarantee you some of you are already winding up your arguments and you're passionate and they're going to hear it and you're going to humiliate them and you're going to make them look dumb. The text doesn't say to be passionate about Rome, passionate about medical, passionate about finances. It's to be passionate, zeal of serving the Lord with brotherly affection to your brother. There better be more passion for Jesus than our positions. You guys look confused. That's in the text. You see it? Don't be slothful. This isn't something we do accidentally, haphazardly. It's something we do faking it. It's not something we pretend to do because it's the Christian thing and then we go home and talk trash about everybody. That's not genuine love. That's love to make us look good and make them feel bad because we look good and they don't. That's not a biblical love. It's not a genuine love. It's not full of zeal. It's not fervent in the spirit. And it's hard because we're so programmed to show everyone the best of what we have. Social media this weekend, there's going to be pictures and it's going to be a family smiling and happy. There's going to be no picture of grandma using the wrong china, right? Of the little kid slapping his brother and the mom choking the son and the son killing, right? None of these pictures will happen, will they? And that's okay. Like we want to celebrate what's good. But the point is, We have been programmed to only show the good. And when we're doing that, it's really easy to pretend to love people because it benefits us. To see people as a commodity, as a status, or as a pawn in our game of chess is to not be genuine in our love. It's to love evil, hate good, and have a worldly affection and not a godly, brotherly affection. So these are the things God tells us about what it means to love, to love other Christians. That we, it's okay to disagree. Why? Because we come from the same Father. And we see this in Matthew 5, 43 through 48. Jesus is, is packaging this to them. It's being revolutionary to them. He says in 43, it says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, is this because God doesn't want you to be vindicated? No, God has a plan. He will either discipline the Christian because he disciplines those whom he loves, or his wrath will be poured out on the ungodly for their rebellion against him. He's saying, trust me, your job is prayer. Your job is to love them. And the prayer is not, that you would see that person suffer in pain. The prayer is that you would not hold against them the wrong they've done to you. That you would let that go, give that to the Father, and that our heart would be right so that we're able to love them in a fervent, genuine way because that's how God has loved us. It's not about praying for your enemy's demise. It's about praying that you would not hate your enemy. So that, 45, an unexposited part of this this chunk, you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. See, this is what it means to be a child of God. You do not hate. 
You do not persecute. You do not hold against. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. He's saying, I am the arbiter of justice. You accomplish nothing when we try to take justice into our own hands. How dare you talk to me like that? I'll show you. How dare you do this? You'll never want to do that to me again. That's a worldly love. And what he's saying is, I'm calling you to a godly love. A love that is unconditional and unbiased and flows from the Father himself. Look at 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. He's looking at the most reviled people in a Jewish culture, the people who are taking Jewish money and giving it to Rome so that Rome can stay in dominance over them and saying, even those guys know how to love who loves them. And if you're a Christian, how dare you? You should know better. Our love should far exceed the love of the pagans and the non-Christian because we have the love of the Father. And that's how you know you're a son and daughter. Keep working your way through this. It says, and if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Now he takes it a step further. Don't even the Gentiles do this? 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Look at his perfect character revealed in Christ himself. That's what it means to be a son. He is the perfect son, the example of the son and daughter that we are to be. And that doesn't mean we can't disagree. It means that because we agree about Christ, because we agree about God, that we hold fast to what is good. We hate what is evil. We have zeal and passion in loving other people. And we do it under the Lord. That's what this is getting at in 12.1. Be a living sacrifice. God, whatever you need to help other, my other brothers and sisters love you, worship you, be reminded of you, to be remembered of all they have in Christ. They have everything they need. Ephesians 1, you've been adopted. You've been given every spiritual blessing. Romans 8, you can never escape the love of God. Romans 8, God works all things for your good and his glory. Being reminded of those things and do it unto him. Do it unto him. It's never about the person. And here's a little secret. God never gives us permission to be mean to other people. There will be no conversation between us and God where God goes, yeah, I saw how they voted. I would have done that too. I saw what they did with that vaccine. I would have done worse. You think that's how prayer works? Absolutely not. There's never permission to take vengeance into our own hands, to be full of anger, hatred, gossip, slander, malice. Then he progresses it, right? So he says, look, genuine love. No matter what they've done, you love them as the Father has loved you. To be patient, okay? Starts with rejoice in hope and then be patient. Why does it say rejoice in hope? This is important. No matter how hard life gets, we always have hope. Why do we always have hope? Because the worst thing that can happen is impossible to happen. What's the worst thing that could happen? That we would not be a child of God. Our sins wouldn't be forgiven and heaven would not be our home. Wouldn't that be the worst thing that could happen? Okay, the four of us who are excited that that can't happen, 
Jesus makes it very clear. All that the Father has given me, none can be taken from me. None can be taken from me. John 6 and 10. Ephesians 1, you've been adopted and you've been permanently sealed in that adoption by the Holy Spirit. Permanently. The Holy Spirit doesn't fail. Therefore, we rejoice in the hope that no matter what tribulation, because it says patient and tribulation happens, heaven is home, God will make all things right, and all this pain will go away. We always have that to rejoice in. That's good news, isn't it? Absolutely. That's why he says be patient in tribulation. See, there's no promise of a pain-free life. There's no promise in the scripture that earth is going to be majestic and magical and full of unicorns and fairies. That's not what the Bible says. He's putting this rich in the context of there's going to be tribulation. Be patient. Why is that? Because in our patience, it shows our understanding of how the Father has been patient with us. Do you understand how the Father has been patient with you? If you don't, you might not be saved. Or you haven't prayed in a long time. Because if we're honest, we keep making the same done sins over and over again, don't we? And God is so patient with us. Isn't he? It reflects we understand his patience towards us. He's saying, therefore, trust me during hard times. Trust me. Be patient. Don't take vengeance into your own hands. I don't like what's happening, so I'm going to force the issue. I'm going to force my job. I'm going to force this person. I'm going to make this person, this entity, pay for what I'm saying. Be patient in tribulation. They say, well, that's a tall order. That's why it's so important we understand that God is not asking anything of us that has not been greater in the past of Christians before us and definitely not greater than what Jesus endured. Okay, just to give us a little bit of context, when Romans is written and received, they would have been in about the third year of Nero's reign. Okay? And if we understand Nero, this is so important. He starts off as this uh, loving, benevolent dictator Caesar. He, he was trying to accomplish this um, ideology that all good things come from Caesar. So he was giving out money and he was paying for things. He's trying to get people like, man, what I have is because of Caesar. Why is he doing this? Because he's trying to set himself up as God. So that you learn all good things come from Caesar and all bad things come from those who go against Caesar. All bad things happen for those who disagree with me, Nero. Okay? So in his godlike complex, he grows. And he is building himself this golden city. And as the golden city is being accomplished, he's running out of money in the economy, bankrupting Rome. So he's stealing from people. He's stealing from other cities, taking their gold and building it bigger. He's not paying his soldiers. He's robbing his people. Not to mention, he's getting married, but only he's wearing the wedding dress. We haven't had that problem with a dictator yet, have we? I'm just saying, a lady in first service found it funny. She told me, you remember Dennis Rodman and he wore a dress? I was like, yeah. She's like, praise God he wasn't our president. I'm like, I know, it would have been crazy, right? I mean, these are the crazy things that are going on, okay? 
And, and Nero is trying to build his golden city even bigger. So you know what he's doing? He's burning down cities so that he can make even more land available. Well, what happened is they burned down a city that had people in it and people died and people became angry. So you know what he did? He blamed it on the Christians. He said, it's the Christians' fault. They're the ones who burned down your city. He's quoted as saying, Christians are foreign and deadly superstition. A foreign and deadly superstition. So he burns this city, blames the Christians, and then he punishes the Christians. He feeds them to dogs. He ties them up to horses and lets the horses go in opposite directions. He lights them on fire and uses them as lampposts to light up the city. And what does God say to his people? Be patient in tribulation. That hits a little bit harder than it hits us, don't you think? That's the context in which God says, be patient. We are to be patient, to not try to take vengeance into our own hands, force the hand of God, move the hand of God. Rather, we are to trust the hand of God. He is not ignorant to our position. He is not ignorant to our feelings. It is not lost on him that people might be losing their jobs. People might be losing their health that families might be splitting up over the things that are taking place. He is not lost. He says, be patient. And then what's the next part of it? Be constant in prayer. Be constant in prayer. Why does this set itself up like this? I want you to think about this. If this is the persecution happening to Christians, you're going to find fathers burned at the stake, hung on the cross because they wouldn't worship Caesar because they were being blamed for things. You're going to have families without fathers, mothers with no way of providing for their children. He's saying, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, hate what is evil, cling to what is good, give brotherly affection. How can we help our Christians in tribulation if we hate them for their worldly stances and ignore that what we have from our familial biblical stances? Doesn't work, does it? So I'm saying you got to be patient in tribulation. You got to be constant in prayer. You got to trust the Father. You understand what He's done for you. Then you'll be able to come down to 13 to what? Contribute to the needs of the saints, to seek to show hospitality. You see, because what we'll recognize is these people need homes, they need help, they need love, because they're being torn apart by the world. And you see, that's really how Satan is trying to win this is to get us so angry on each other that while we're falling apart, instead of caring for our brothers and sisters in Christ, we join the party and beat them further into the ground. And we celebrate their loss and say, see, I was right. My earthly way of thinking was superior to yours. The Bible is the contrary. It says, show hospitality. Okay? We have a rare opportunity to show hospitality in in the holidays. You have an opportunity to open up your home, let people in, and show them what a loving family that is rooted in the love of God looks like. You know, gone are the days when people wander in on horses and camels, and they don't have a hotel, you know, they don't have an Airbnb. And so Christians would take these people in. You know, look at the Bedouins. They would take these people in, 
And they would love them, not just to love them, but to show them the love of the Father. Because they're holding fast to what is good. They're being a living sacrifice, saying all that is mine is to be used by God, even my home. And to share the love of Christ with them. Now, we don't do that, but we do have the opportunity to let people in our homes and show them this is what kindness looks like. This is what forgiveness looks like. This is what prayer, God's word, mercy, faithfulness, priorities that love God more than it loves its systems, its politics, its education, its government, its money, its wealth. It loves the Father. And greater than that, we have an opportunity to show them what biblical failure looks like. So when Uncle Johnny drops the good china, when someone forgets to put a cup away in the right place, someone spills something on the carpet, someone, you know, some little kid runs into your knee and you lose it, you have an opportunity to show this is how we own our sin. This is how we're graceful. This is how we show mercy. This is how we are honest that we're not perfect and we ask for forgiveness instead of doubling down and saying, who are you to tell me? Remember what you did last Thanksgiving? What happened to forgiveness? What happened to holding fast to what is good? See, our hospitality gives us a chance to show them this is what the biblical family looks like. Here's what you're missing. Here's what you need. Because some of our family, they say they're Christian. They never go to church and they don't know Jesus, but they're American, so that makes them a Christian, right? We know these people? It's like, well, whoa, my family doesn't look like that. Yeah, because this is what happens when you have the love of Christ through the Holy Spirit directed by the word of God, being a living sacrifice. That hospitality gives us a chance to speak to them, okay? And through that hospitality, we have the ability to, let's keep working through this text, live in harmony. It says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Why is that so important? What a sad place it is when we can't get excited for other Christians. Isn't that a bad place to be? When you're so mad at them because of their politics or their, their health status or their job status, that when something bad happens, you're like, yes. And when something good happens, you're like, oh, I can't believe that happened to them. Isn't that a terrible place to be? Absolutely. To not be in a place where like, what? Praise God he answered your prayer. Praise God he's moving in your life. Praise God he answered your prayer. Praise God good things are happening that, that you are loving the Father. Rejoice. Who cares about the things we disagree about? God is working and we celebrate that. Amen? And, and then on the other side, to not be able to mourn. Imagine, imagine someone losing their job. And you're like, ha ha, I told you, you should have got vaccinated. Is that really the response we want? Someone's in the hospital because they got a vaccine shot. Oh, told you. Is that really where we want to be? That we're unable to mourn with the people who are mourning? That we can't look past the disagreement and say, this is my brother, this is my sister in Christ. They're in pain. I mourn with them. I pray for them. I give them brotherly affection to remind them that the Father has loved them, the Father is with them, that he is the potter, we're the clay, we need to be patient in tribulation. Isn't it a terrible thing when worldly things rob us of the ability to mourn and weep with our own family? Absolutely. 
It disrupts the harmony. That's how it gets to the next point. Live in harmony with one another. What does that mean? This this is such a rich, beautiful text. It has in mind we're all going to be different. See, harmony is when different musical notes come together for one beautiful sound. And now he's tying, tying in earlier parts of Romans 12, isn't he? That we've all been gifted differently. We will all have different trials and tribulations. And that when we are faithful and patient and we give God glory in those moments through kindness, through patience, through mercy, through self-control, through faithfulness, it plays a note to the glory of God. And when all of those notes come together, it gives a beautiful sound that says, look how good our Father is. We're inviting them into our homes. We're praying for those who persecute us. We're weeping with each other. We're rejoicing with each other. It makes a harmony that the world hears and it goes, wow, how do you love each other like that? How do you live like that? And we say, because of the Father, he's given us the Son. To live in harmony has in mind that we are different, coming together for the goodness and glory of God, okay? With one another, do not be haughty, associate with the lowly, and never be wise in your own sight. May we never build our earthly empire and say the way I've programmed it is so much smarter than you. I'm leaving California. I'm not quitting my job. I am quitting my job. I voted this way. I'm so much smarter than you. You deserve this. I can't rejoice with you. I can't weep with you. I can only celebrate my own wisdom. We cannot hold the world's wisdom and weep with those who need it and rejoice with those who need it because we're too busy building our own kingdom and not being a living sacrifice. These are the things we die to for the glory of God and the good of each other to be a living sacrifice because he deserves it because he's the potter and we're the clay. Now you see Romans just working itself out so beautifully that we would live in harmony with one another. Some conclusions to to think about, some verses. In conclusion, right, love is to be genuine, not fake. It's to be genuine out of the love of the Father has for us. It's for us to keep a healthy reality of what God has done so that we can celebrate and we can mourn and we can give affection. So, some questions. Identify some Christians you need to do a better job of loving. Pray for them and ask God to change your heart. See, here's the thing. We can't allow worldly things to dictate biblical love. Biblical love has to outweigh worldly principles, promises, and positions. And if we have a hard time loving another Christian because of their position, we need to start praying now that God would change our heart to love them in a way that he's loved us. I guarantee you, you already got probably two or three people, you know Thursday's coming. Be constant in prayer, right? That's that's what it says in the text. Two, how can you work on being more hospitable? Who can you invite over? I mean, think right now, who's maybe someone who's gonna be alone? There's families that aren't coming together because they disagree on these things. They have nowhere to go. They might not even be able to afford a Thanksgiving. Who's someone you can invite and be hospitable and show the love of God, model the love of a godly family? and include them in the love of God as brotherly affection, right? Three, what hinders your ability to live in harmony with other Christians? 
And how can you make sure you're singing the right notes? What is it you care about so much that it gets in the way of you loving another Christian? Whether it be politics, money, government, food, you know, whatever it is. You say, man, I need to die to that so that I can love that person. It's affecting my ability to show brotherly affection. And that's not what God wants for me. Four, in what area of your life can you work on being more patient? Meaning, rather than rushing to try and fix it and bring your own justice, you say, okay, God, help me trust you. Help me be patient. It's not working the way I want, but I need to be faithful. I need to be fervent. I need to be prayerful. I need to have brotherly affection. I need to hate what is evil. I need to hold fast as what is good. Help me do these things. Five, are there issues over which you struggle to let people disagree with you? How can you be more loving to those people? And six, where have you seen God's love the most evident in your life? And how can that memory help you love others? This is very important. If right now you can't think of how God is actively loving you, you're gonna really struggle to love other people. How can you love people when you don't even think God loves you? That's the connection we have to always make. God is loving me currently now by, he's loved me in the past by doing this. So when it comes to that person, it's like, oh yeah, God loved me through that. God loved me through that. I have to love this person through that. It's keeping it in the front of our minds that we can be a living sacrifice. And last thing is, is we're gonna go into a time of worship. It's an opportunity to let the truths we sing enter our heart be cemented in our mind so that as we go on through our days, we're reminded that's who God is. That's what God has done. I'm grateful. I'm a living sacrifice. I need to hold to what is good. I need to hate what is evil. I need to rejoice when they rejoice. Worship these things remind us of the greatness of God so that we become a living sacrifice in response to his greatness. Amen? Let's pray. God, we love you and we praise you and we thank you for your word. It is always true, it is accurate, and most of all, it is profitable. God, it's our deep prayer that you would help us love as the Father has loved us. That you would help our love be genuine and evident for one another. And even deeper than that, that we would love you so much, our natural response would be, God, do with me as you want. I am at your disposal. I am at your service because you are glorious, amazing, and worthy of anything you ask. It's our prayer that we would sing in a way that reflects your glory, your goodness, and your greatness. Prepare our hearts to love this week and the coming weeks in a way that glorifies and honors you. Uh, In Jesus' name we pray, amen.